0: To Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, Where we go back Back to the past And read a comic book from the yes year of publishing You can find us every Sunday On chrisandreggie.podbean.com And you can also subscribe to us And pick us up on iTunes, Stitcher Podbean, Google Play And Radio Antenna or Wi-Fi enabled Trick Arrow Mm. Mm. (laughs) Mmm We got a special book this week A special request uh, that we've been looking forward to doing
1: Absolutely. The book we're doing is was chosen by uh, Ruth and Darren Sutherland uh, from over at uh, the Rad Adventures Network, the R-A-D, Ruth and Darren. Uh, that's oh, the home they are of Warlord... quite rad, right? They are. They are very, very nice and rad people. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the home of Warlord Worlds, Xenozoic, Xenophiles, and Trekker Talk Podcasts. Uh, this one, uh, you know, Warlord Worlds is dedicated to the works of Mike Grell. Um, now, Warlord Worlds, uh, warlordworlds.com. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're they're all available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and on the Rad Adventures channel on YouTube. Uh, they also have uh, social media for all their projects, and we will include links to them in the show notes.
0: Yeah, these guys are a lot more together than we are, folks. So, yes, if you want to see how are. it should be done, you should go check them out. Talk about their uh, three shows a little bit. Each of their shows, they focus on specific creators. Uh, Trekker Talk covers the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair From the pages of the sci-fi comic Trekker by creator, writer, and artist Ron Randall The show also features occasional tangent episodes and other comics by Ron Randall Including his work on Supergirl, Star Wars, and the Justice League
1: Yeah, Ron Randall was responsible for the art, uh, fill-in uh, art on one of my very favorite issues of all time That's at uh, Tales of the Teen Titans, number 55 Oh, wow where uh, Beast Boy and Deathstroke share breakfast. It's a <laughs> nice. great issue. Um, a Warlord Worlds is focused on the many comics of writer and artist Mike Grell. Each episode covers multiple issues of Warlord, John Sable, and Green Arrow. Plus, they occasionally cover other series, such as Starslayer and Shaman's or Shamans Tears. And uh, as we speak, they're currently covering his time on the Legion of Superheroes.
0: And I guess this would be the podcast that officially selected this comic, right? Uh, yes. That we're talking about Just to, you know. But another one that they have, the third one is Xenozoic Xenophiles It's about the Cadillacs and Dinosaurs series Xenozoic Tales by writer and artist Mark Schultz. The podcast covers One issue of the comic in each episode And will later cover other works by Mark Schultz Including his novella Storms at Sea And the miniseries Subhuman They also plan to cover the animation, Animated television series
1: but yeah, all my, uh, that
0: said, oh, sorry.
1: I was going to say my experience with uh, Mark Schultz is uh, kind of limited uh, to his time on uh, Man of Steel around the turn of the century. I, I've i been meaning to get a hold of these uh, Cadillacs and Dinosaurs uh, or the Xenozo- the Xenozoic Tales uh, comics, but I haven't yet.
0: The name is super familiar to me, but I, I didn't look to connect them to anything that mm. I've looked at. But uh, we, I did read the book that we're going <laughs> to talk about today, even before Certainly. even before we did the episode. Yes. Uh, so what book is that, Chris?
1: That is Green Arrow, The Longbow Hunter's Number One, the uh, prestige format. Uh, August uh, 1987, cover date, written by Mike Grell, penciled and inked by Mike Grell and Lorraine Haynes. Was that what we're saying? Or yep. Lorraine Haynes? Uh, Lorraine, uh, sure. Sure. Uh, colored by uh, Julia... Like
0: and <laughs> like man You want to go back to Lorreen Haynes, don't you? I think maybe, yes. Lackaman, <laughs> <laughs> like maybe. Lackaman, <laughs> I don't know.
1: Sure. <laughs> and like we said, this is the prestige format comic. Uh, cover price uh, $2.95 US, $3.95 US. Canada, mm,
0: but it is oversized, so it is a val- it is. good value in here. So uh, let's and,
1: talk- and it's got the little. Uh, it's it's got the square binding.
0: That's right. <laughs> so yeah, it's got a it on spine book. on it, so you can mm-hmm. feel like you're actually reading a real book, and people won't make fun of you. True. Uh, so a little bit about the creators, of course. We can talk about Mike Grell. He was born September 13, 1947, in Northern Wisconsin. His father was a lumberjack. He enjoyed hunting and camping as a kid. Learned to shoot a gun when he was four years old. Killed a bar when. No, I'm sorry, that was someone else. Uh, learned to shoot a bow and arrow when he was seven. Uh, Mike's hometown wasn't wired for television until he was eight. Hmm. Uh, and the Grell family didn't get a television until he turned 11. So interesting. childhood definitely a lot different than mine, I'll tell you what. Certainly. Since my, when my third parent was television. Um, his earliest years were spent listening to radio and reading comic books and strips. Mike's mom was a talented artist and encouraged his, her children to draw, including Mike, of course. And at age sixteen, Mike attempted some lumberjack work with his dad. He didn't take to it. Didn't didn't like I wouldn't it. either. Didn't like the life. Yeah. You, you know, I'll tell you, you're either a cutout to do that or not. There's no in-between. You can't kind of you can't You can't you know, learn that. Yeah, and you can't do it halfway. You can't be like <laughs> mediocre, you know, like, ah, I'm kind of the lazy lumberjack. Uh, Early on, Mike imagined being an architect in the vein of Frank Lloyd Wright, but he found the necessary math daunting, which I can definitely understand. I can
1: definitely understand that, yes. Uh, Grell would attend the University of Wisconsin Green Bay for a year. Uh, Then his name came up in the draft for the Vietnam War. Uh, he took an option to enlist in the Air Force in 1967. Uh, while in the Air Force, a fellow by the name of Bailey Phelps suggested he give up commercial art and get into cartooning. Uh, Mike says, according to him, cartoonists only worked two or three days a week and earned a million dollars a year. Hello, Ching Ching. You know, I th- I think we're in the wrong place.
0: Uh, I definitely think I'm switching gears. <laughs> if this is, uh, yeah,
1: I got to work on my uh, on my my drawing fingers here. Uh, <laughs> Now, a fellow uh, fellow serviceman brought some of his comic book collection along while Mike was stationed in Saigon. Uh, Among those books were uh, the Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams Green uh, Lantern, Green Arrow comics. Uh, The social relevance inside was a real eye-opener to Mike. Mm -hmm. Uh, He took the famous artist school correspondence course in cartooning while in Saigon. He was discharged from the Air Force in 1971. Then he studied at the Chicago Academy of Fine Art under a fellow named Art Huta. Huta, we're thinking?
0: I think so. That sounds good. Okay. I don't
1: know. Huta was a uh, was an animator on Disney's Fantasia.
0: Yeah. Um, while in school, Mike did commercial art, some illustration, and doing paste-ups for flyers and ads at a, at a printing house. He could have taken a full-time job with the printing house for a good deal of money. In fact, what he said was four times what he was making doing illustrations, but wow. he wanted to go with illustration because he, he learned more doing it and because, of course, for comics' sake. Initially, mm-hmm. Mike wanted to be a syndicated com- comic strip artist, which is common in this biz, but no one was interested in his action-oriented pitches. He got in touch with Dale Messick, creator of the strip Brenda Star, and Mike was hired to do nearly everything but the layouts, another assistant did those. <laughs> uh, he tightened up the pencils, inked, and spotted blacks. And then Messick would come in and just draw the faces, which actually, (laughs) which which actually, you come to find out, is quite common in comic strips. But also, uh, for that comic in particular, the faces, especially of Brenda Starr, was so specific. Uh, Do you remember it at all? She had kind of an Uh eye that looked like a twinkly star, you know? Yep. So it almost was a situation where no one else could do that. But uh, anyway, that's that's all part of the Getting your feet wet in the biz, folks. Certainly, it's paying the dues. Yep. In 1973, Mike moved to New York City in hopes of getting into the comics biz. He showed his creator-owned strips, uh, Savage Empire and Iron Mike around, but there were no bites for those. Irv Novick told Negosi to Julie Schwartz at DC Comics immediately. Julie liked Mike's stuff and showed and Julie showed it to Joe Orlando, who was the art director at the time. Orlando gave Mike a job doing an Aquaman backup in Weird. Adventure Comics number four thirty-five. Thought that was interesting that they, for a time, just put the word "weird" above Adventure yeah. Comics, just to like, <laughs> just to, I guess to give it more of a horror sci-fi feel or whatever. Uh, that was October nineteen seventy-four cover date. When Mike handed in his pages, Orlando jokingly said he couldn't do it anymore because he drew Aquaman mooning the reader. And yet, it's like <laughs> I saw the image, and it's like Aquaman's diving into the water, and he has. Very round buns, we will say. Yes.
1: You
0: know? <laughs> Very supple looking.
1: He's in quite good shape.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, another panel would have Aquaman sitting on a throne. That looked like he was sitting on a toilet. <laughs> so Mike was the Aquaman on the toilet guy for a bunch of years there. Eh? Uh, Joe Orlando helped mentor Grell and improve his artwork. Uh, he soon took over for Dave Cockrum on Superboy starring the Legion of Superheroes, which is still technically a Superboy book. Yeah. Uh, Dave had uh, quit under somewhat acrimonious circumstances mm-hmm. before. Uh, Mike inked over Dave Cockrum's pencils on Superboy 202, this June '74, and penciled and inked until uh, number 224, February of 1977. And then he would come back for issue 235 in January of 1978. Uh, he would co-create the character Dawnstar with Paul Levitz, a native character with tracking abilities and wings. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike then went to pitch Savage Empire to uh, independent comics publisher Atlas during lunch hour, who paid more than DC, uh, notes Mike.
0: It's interesting, which I thought was weird, but uh, maybe had a big infusion of cash. I don't know what that was about.
1: Could be. Mm. Uh, Now, back at the office, Mike was stopped in the hallway by publisher Carmine Infantino. Infantino asked why he was sniffing around Atlas. And Mike explained his story. I mean, Carmine, in
0: between the time that he left <laughs> to go and come back, Infantino found out. That's how tight knew. the industry at least was, <laughs> yes. if not is. Like, you can't do anything.
1: No, no. you, you, Yeah, you you can't not wash your hands after you use the bathroom without the entire industry. Sure, Now, yep. uh, now Carmine listened to the pitch, but wasn't interested. Uh, while Carmine took a phone call, Mike rearranged the pitch for Savage Empire in his head, and this would become Warlord. Wow. Yeah, about that. The uh, the concept was further fleshed out uh, during a weekend retreat with Joe Orlando.
0: And I mean, Warlord, which is a comic that we do hope to cover eventually, is a really complex thing. I mean, I understand it was fleshed out, but...
1: Oh, total world building?
0: Crazy to whip up, you know, while some guy's on a phone call, but (laughs) good job. So Warlord debuted in first issue, issue special number 8, November 1975. Chris did. My favorite series. You did review this, and I think almost every book in the series on your blog. <laughs> <Almost>. <laughs> this was supposed to guarantee him a six-issue run, but Infantino canceled the book the first issue special after the third issue of Warlord in first issue special, as I understand. The Uh,
1: Warlord series proper, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, At just that moment, there was a management change and Jeanette Kahn became publisher. Hence, the DC Explosion and their all-new adventure line, which we did talk about one time, a long time ago. long time ago. This brought us Warlord number one, January, February 1976 cover date. The title went on an eight-month hiatus after number two, picking up again with number three, November 1976. I I couldn't find out why, but it did. (laughs) <laughs> Original series lasted for 131 issues until 1988 And a bonus book in issue number 131 Featured Rob Liefeld's first work for DC Comics uh, Grell also launched The Batman Family September-October 1975 to October-November 1978 With Elliot S. Megan And he drew the Green Lantern Green Hour Revival Written by Denny O'Neill in 1976 Which must have been a real treat for him
1: yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, I think Warlord was the first uh, Dan Jurgens art. Um, really, it, it, I think that was his very earliest work for DC. Late 70s, was in or the something, pa- yeah. uh, early 80s, I think, in the pages of Warlord. Yeah, wow. Uh, he he did walk away from drawing it.
0: Uh, I can't remember the issue, but after somewhere in the 20s, I believe, and then actually walked away from writing it in the early. 80s. His wife did it. it yeah, his, his wife, wife Ghost but yeah. Uh, yeah, so I guess that was a good place to get started, and and pretty lush drawing to do. Also, a lot of it, It's just out of a swords and sorcery book. It's of you know, it's a little bit of Conan, a little bit of sci-fi in there, a little bit of gunplay. So, mm, but still un- in the DC universe. Still in the, still <laughs> under the DC universe in a way. But because
1: it was because uh, yes, it was in the Hollow Earth. Mm. Um, now uh, Grell wrote and drew the Tarzan comic strip from July nineteenth, nineteen eighty one, to February twenty seventh, nineteen eighty three. Except except for one, which was February thirteenth, and that was uh, done by Thomas Yeats. or Yeats. Yeah. Uh, he published a creator-owned sci-fi series, *Star Slayer*, as a six-issue miniseries through Pacific Comics in 1982. Uh, originally a pitch for DC, uh, ditched during the uh, the implosion that we've we've discussed before. Uh, the title would uh, eventually shift over to First Comics in 1983, partly due to uh, editor Mike Gold working there. Yeah. Uh, he would publish the creator-owned John Sable Freelance at First Comics from June 1983 to February 1988. Ran 51 issues, not bad for an independent. Not at all. Um, he was lured back to DC and rehired by Mike Gold <clears throat> and the uh, promise to do Green Arrow, uh, namely the series that we will be discussing shortly.
0: That's right. It's right here. But uh, also I want to talk a little bit about the artist and or the co-artist and as usual, this there was really this was hard, Chris. I got to say, oh boy, I, I had to pull this information from a lot of different sources, and none of them were interviews. It was all like, <laughs> it was all like newspaper records and crazy things. But was
1: uh, she in I, any low-budget independent films? No,
0: I, I should have gone that route. I, uh, <laughs> I did the best. I, I hope. I hope I gave the best picture I can. Uh, so Lorene Haynes uh, was is also known as Lorene Bean, Leslie Burgess Haynes. She was born December nineteenth, nineteen fifty-eight, in Montreal, Quebec, but grew up in Vancouver. Began her career in nineteen eighty-six. So the Longbow Hunters is like her first professional job, I guess. I mean, it's kind That'll of gotta be one of them, yeah. Kind of incredible, you know what I mean? She started in eighty-six, and then the following year, here's the Longbow Hunters, and that was Crazy. really all I could find out for the intro for her uh, her existence. I mean, it, it really seems almost pitiful, but. I should, I, we do the best we can around here, folks. We can only work with yes. what we've got. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Green Arrow, the character, uh, he would first appear in More Fun Comics, number 73, November of 1941. This is an old guy. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was created by Mort Weisinger and George Papp. Uh, his arrow-slinging sidekick, Speedy, also known as uh, Roy Harper Jr., debuted with him. Uh, Oliver Queen, billionaire businessman of Star City, dresses up like Robin Hood to fight crime with trick arrows and shots. Uh, pretty much from the start, was a bare ripoff of Batman. Yeah. Uh, he, he had his—he uh, actually had an arrow cave. He had an arrow car, uh-huh. an arrow signal, um, and he even had a uh, sort of kind of Joker-esque villain named Bullseye. Yeah, he was
0: like a clown criminal, basically. So yep. <laughs> in the same vein.
1: Now, uh, Green Arrow, he actually survived past the Golden Age as a backup feature in in Superboy stories, uh, first in More Fun and then in Adventure Comics through the 50s and into the early 60s, uh, mostly due to the iron will of his creator and Superman Group editor, uh, Mort Weisinger. Yeah. And
0: insisting uh, <laughs> you will have yes, Green Arrow. You
1: will like have Green Arrow. Uh, now a few uh, from nineteen fifty eight were even illustrated by the king himself, Jack Kirby.
0: Yeah, and, and the issues that these Jack Kirby backups are in suddenly shoot up in value, let me tell you. They they you know, these comics in good condition are worth a little bit something, pretty much all of them, but suddenly the Jack Kirby start le- leaping into the Low hundreds sometimes, so it's. Uh, they,
1: they didn't redraw his face, though, did they?
0: No, that, that's that might be why they're worth so much. Yeah, <laughs> there they, you they go. Feel they had to do that. Now, uh, in the in the Brave and the Bold number eighty-five, that was August September nineteen sixty-nine. Neil Adams updated the look of Green Arrow with a Van Dyke beard and a more stylized costume. In Justice League of America number seventy-five in November nineteen sixty-nine, Denny O'Neill changed the character. Uh, Ali lost his billions, he was no longer a wealthy man He started to espouse leftist ideology And Oliver also became an item with Dinah Lance, aka Black Canary, in this issue O'Neill and Adams would have a run from Green Lantern 76 to 89, minus one issue, number 88 Where the series was retitled Green Lantern, Green Arrow and And would be known as the Hard Traveling Heroes run For many, this is a definitive run that dealt, frankly, with the issues of the day. And this must have been the comic that Mike Grell saw when he was... uh, In Saigon. In Saigon. Um, Among other things, Speedy is revealed to be a junkie in issues 85 to 86. Despite critical acclaim, including a congratulatory letter from New York City Mayor John Lindsay, the sales of the comic were poor. And the final story arc of Green Lantern Green Arrow series was published as a backup feature in The Flash 217 through 219, which is... Weird as, as heck to me. Wild, you know? isn't it? Yeah. But I mean it's such a venerated run and I mean the trade is an evergreen, you know. That's it's had several editions, it sells forever. But uh yeah, this it's kinda of was a clunker on the stands for whatever reason.
1: Yeah, even early like the early nineties printings of the trade are, mm-hmm. are they're hard to get and they're hard they're they're hard to afford. That's where I first even, saw
0: it with the new yeah. painted covers and everything. Yeah. And uh yeah, I don't I don't really get it, but you know, I guess Different times, different strokes, who knows what the story I was. I
1: guess. I guess, they, you know, the, the folks really didn't didn't want to know that plastic manufacturing is bad.
0: <laughs> Kaluta, you know? No. Kaluta! <laughs> and, that, and, that,
1: and that slumlords are bad. Yeah, well, we learned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, after this, Green Arrow would would feature as backup in uh, Action Comics, starting with issue 421, written by Elliot S. Magan. Um, Now, Green Lantern, Green Arrow was revived in 1976, Uh, still written by Denny O'Neill, but drawn by our man, Mike Grell. Uh, eventually, and I think uh, who was the other one? Who I think Joe Staten did some of it, and I think Ross Andrew did a little bit. Oh yeah, that yeah, makes sense. I think may I could be mistaken. I probably shouldn't have said that. <laughs> <laughs> eventually, Green Lantern became a solo series again, and Green Arrow would feature as uh, backups in World's Finest. Uh, Ollie would become a newspaper reporter, and he was uh, where he was able to write about politics.
0: Yeah, first he ripped off had- Batman, now he rips off Superman. Why not? <laughs>
1: sure, why not. <laughs> And uh, he has his first run towards Mayor of Star City, and That's this right. one was unsuccessful in 1979. Uh, now a four-issue miniseries, which would be, I mean, he was, uh, what, a 45, 50-year-old concept at this uh-huh. point. This is his first, very first self-titled comic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the first book with Green Arrow as the title was in 1983. And uh, this 4 put uh, Green Arrow against Count Vertigo and... Also found him, uh, willed a lot of money, so he became wealthy again. <laughs> mm. Very convenient. Uh, and, and, mm-hmm. and it, it, somewhere early on, he was part of the Seven Soldiers of Victory, right? In the Golden
0: Age. In the you mean, Golden Age, Oh, yeah, age, right? yeah, yeah, he was He was one of the, I should have mentioned that, but he was one of the Seven Soldiers. Uh, yeah. But he was also part of the... No, he wasn't on the Justice Society that I can think of. No, no, uh, no. the All Star Squadron. Yeah.
1: They put him in the All Star Squadron when they took that photo in the very last pre-Crisis issue. Okay. And then when they, at the very end of that issue, that you look, they you look at the photo again, and a lot of people are missing, because that's when the Crisis actually happened. I it was see. a pretty cool issue. Um, I think it was issue 60 of All-Star Squadron. Um, now, during during Crisis on Infinite Earths, Earth 2, Earth, Green Arrow, and Speedy are retconned out of existence, leading to a new unified ollie, the uh, the composite ollie, right. <laughs> as exemplified in the book we're going to talk about today, which is... Right. It is...
0: the Green Arrow, the Longbow Hunters, number one of three. <laughs> Uh, this issue is called The Hunters. Now, this uh, it's a prestige comic, like we said, so it actually has a wraparound cover, no ads uh, in this comic at all. And it looks like a lot of pulp novels or movie posters you might have seen in the 80s, you think, right? You know, like, kind of, yeah. got like a kind of montage, kind of like a uh, Ollie in his new costume or superimposed over a profile of Ollie in his old costume on the front in a circle. And the back has the Seattle skyline with some guy holding a knife, kind of strangely... Up, right?
1: <laughs> it, looks, it looks like he's posing before he throws it into a dartboard.
0: It, it doesn't look like that. He's about, <laughs> he's about to like chuck it. It's a throwing knife. Yeah. Um, it, it's striking. It's an interesting cover. You know, definitely, I, it I think if you had seen this, uh, you know, at the time, you'd be like, get your attention. this is, this yeah. is unusual. Um, and then, so we open on the Seattle's wharf near a neon sign that reads Public Market Center, where a prostitute is plying her trade.
1: Yes, the caption says The hunters are dying off Oh, you can still see them if you know where to look Behind the smiles and the masks and the poster grants Born to the concrete jungles The the way their primitive ancestors belong to the forest They seek the same things Food, shelter, comfort As in any hunter-gatherer society There are those who have worked out a system of barter You have something I want I have something you want
0: It seems like a rough area over here There's a guy guy (laughs) in a bad mohawk By the way, and also in this comic Bad mohawks mean bad person I don't know if that's a a shorthand for you Uh, So there's a guy (laughs) with a bad mohawk With a wraparound sunglasses Smokes a cigarette next to an angry looking dude In an ACTC shirt
1: uh, Pike Place Market, or Public Market Center, is a public market overlooking the Elliott Bay waterfront in Seattle. It opened uh, August 17th, 1907, and it's one of the oldest continually, con- continuously operated public farmer's market in the United States.
2: Yeah,
0: it actually has a uh, giant magazine rack, like it, which is like more anachronous than anything else these days. Yes. they <laughs> got like 500 magazines for sale. Uh, the prostitute addresses someone from the reader's point of view, and then things, things go south from there.
1: Yeah, the caption says, There are all kinds of hunters. Some hunt for sport, some hunt to survive, and some just like to watch things die.
0: So she's stabbed and left her dead in an alleyway, and then uh, we see on the next panel a newspaper headline that reads, Seattle Slasher Strikes 18th Victim
1: so yes, uh, the scene shifts to a week later at the new digs of Oliver Queen and Dinah Lance where they are settling in. Uh, they seem to live in uh, some random castle parapet. Yeah,
0: I don't really—it's like, <laughs> it, like in the middle of a park, and it's, it's not even a full castle. It's just no. the turret part. It's just the like... round part. I don't really
1: understand, but okay. <laughs> and uh, Dinah notices—because uh, they're like pulling newspapers off the window. Yeah. And uh, Dinah notices that uh, another headline that'll be relevant here says, Robin Hood Killer Claims Fourth Victim.
0: Dinah
2: says, Must be something in the water.
1: Ollie says, What do a stockbroker, a garage mechanic, a farmer, and a druggist have in common?
2: Dentures, arthritis, and hemorrhoids?
1: Classy. Yeah,
2: <laughs>
1: yeah they they all are all in the same age bracket. Maybe that's how he picks them. Either that or his dog told him to do it.
0: This is referring to David Berkowitz, the son of Sam killer that terrorized New York City in 1976 and 1977. Upon capture, he claimed that his neighbor's dog Sam compelled them to do the murders that he did.
1: Did they ever question Sam?
0: No, they never did. I think they I think they had a dog detective go but they couldn't they couldn't get him to bark. <laughs> yes. Um and now I think it's probably time we say a little something about the artwork in this book cuz it's it's very unique. This is not what you would see in a comic at the time really uh oh and frankly, you wouldn't really even see it today. It's sort of a mixed-media kind of thing. Some panels and pages are in ink and watercolor, others look to be pastel on artboard, like a really toothy artboard, too, and still mm-hmm. others are colored in just with pencil. It even seems like the inking pen changes, you know, what, what is used. I'm, you know, it's sort of confusing a little bit, but uh, uh, it looks. this might be the variance, though, between Mark, Mike Grell and Loreen Haynes. Uh, we, I, we don't know what the art... Duties Chores were each yeah. to be split up, but uh, there also aren't any sound effects in this book, which is an interesting choice. Kind of makes it feel a little more cinematic, but you know it keeps it does change art styles uh, to I think project different moods. I think we'll you know we'll talk a little bit more after we discuss the whole series, but uh, it's worth saying as we go along that this doesn't look like your standard comic book. There's something unique happening here.
1: I never noticed that there were no so, there were no sound effects.
0: Yeah, I didn't notice it. Well, at wow. first I didn't, but as I went through, I was like, wow, there are no sound effects. There, there
1: are no sound and effects. In the second issue, wow.
0: there's that point when you when uh, you see that they're playing something on the radio and you can read the lyrics, you know, and you know what I'm talking about, and they're sort of yeah. like superimposed, hollow on the background. It's like a lot of, a lot of interesting uh, comic choices. book choices yeah. <laughs> being made here. It's, it's very experimental, so it's worth saying Kind of hard to project in talking, but you know, uh, great. give it a look yourself. Tell us what you think.
1: Wow, that's that's that's. I learned something new right here. <laughs> <laughs> now, Ali, uh, having just moved across country, needs a job, and he's in. He's kind of down on himself about it. Uh, he doesn't want to freeload on Dinah all that much. Yeah. Uh, that's you know, Hal Jordan could do the free loading, loading. Yeah, He has no He can sleep that. on other people's couches <laughs> or whatever. Uh, now just then, a heavily made-up woman in a purple trench coat smashes through the window. And these are there's a purple trench coat, not purple shorts, so it's That's not right. the whole <laughs> Uh Ollie and Dinah attend to her immediately.
0: Well, you know they are sort of trained for this. It's kind of in the bag. Dinah says,
1: "My God, she's on
2: something. You better call an ambulance." Can you handle her? She's in more danger of hurting herself than me.
1: The poor lady looks frozen in shock. Yeah, she's
0: having trouble. And while Ollie calls an ambulance, he rifles through this purple-coated woman's purse. Finds no ID, but does find a crack stem and some crack cocaine in a vial. Uh, When the ambulance comes, Dinah wants to go with it back to the hospital. Ollie tells her he can finish unpacking. A police officer is asking questions of some bystanders outside.
1: And I love this line from Ollie. (laughs) You're wasting your time, officer. She was their friend, but they don't know nothing. She got some bad crack, but they didn't see nothing. She just had some bad luck. Bad luck, but it doesn't mean nothing. It couldn't happen to any of them.
0: Wow. I mean, it's just so sarcastic. Yeah. It's great. (laughs) Uh, Later on, we can flash forward, and Dinah's back in the castle is all set up by Ollie. Mm-hmm. Uh, we find out the purple coated lady's name is Rita. She's 17 years old and she's been hooked on drugs for two years. Uh, she'd been transferred to a detox center when she was dropped off at the hospital. Uh, Ollie shows off what he's done while Dinah was away to the house, and there were, like looks like three floors to it. It's a surgical yeah. place, and uh, there are three floors. The, the bottom one is for Dinah, another one is for Ollie, which I think is actually the top floor, and then their shared bedroom,
1: um, which
0: is weird.
1: Well, our house we have a we have a three bedroom house right now, and the wife has one. I've got one, and then we have our shared one. So,
0: but do you have your own living rooms? I mean, that's that's what's weird about it. You know I mean? No, no, we have the same living room. <laughs> they seem to have their. own, I mean, here they have the same bedroom, two living rooms. It's really like all right. I guess well, you know. Um, and mm-hmm. on Ollie's floor, it looks like a low-budget bachelor pad. While Dinah's yep. is like a Victorian salon with this pink striped furniture. But I don't <laughs> think it really fits her either. You know, I'm like she's no. not she's not exactly like a dainty, pretty princess. But all right.
1: No, <laughs> no. After dinner, Ollie hangs a picture of the famous archer Howard Hill, uh, born in 19 I'm sorry, 1899, and passed away in 1975. Howard Hill was unofficially referred to as the world's greatest archer. Uh, he's the only person to win 196 archery field tournaments in succession. Did he do it blindfolded?
0: Uh, No, but that's (laughs) pretty damn
1: impressive. (laughs) That's way impressive, yes. (laughs) Now, he'll produce 23 films about archery for Warner Brothers, and he would play Robin Hood in The Adventures of Robin Hood back in 1938.
0: Yeah, going back. Way back. This movie is almost certainly where Ollie's picture, I guess, supposedly comes from, but I guess (laughs) it doesn't really matter. It's just Robin Hood. Uh, Ollie goes on a little rant about being an old fart, commenting, I'm a grandfather, for God's sake. And he's certainly referring to the fact that it's his ward, Roy Harper, a.k.a. Speedy, he had a child with the international terrorist Cheshire. Uh, the kid's name was Leanne, and she first appeared in New Teen Titans, volume 2, number 21, June 1986. Uh, Ollie reminisces on Howard Hill and how he idolized him.
1: Yeah, he says, He was the one who did all the trick shooting for the movie Robin Hood. God, when I was a kid, I loved that film.
0: Oh, no kidding.
1: Right. (laughs) I met him years later on a yacht off the California coast. We had a mutual friend. I remembered he practiced every day, and he used an old longbow instead of a recurve or a modern compound.
0: Now here we see he's looking through a scrapbook of an older hill. uh, There's a picture in the scrapbook of an older hill shooting targeted clays being launched from a yacht.
1: He says, I asked him why, and he said he simply wasn't a good enough archer to shoot them well, so he stuck to the basics. I forgot that somewhere. I let the gimmicks and trick arrows do the job for me until I forgot how to do it any other way. I lost the edge.
0: And then Ali reminisces on what is now his revised origin story, new, new to everybody.
1: Yes, this is brand new information. He says, on that same trip, the night after I talked to Hill, in fact, I was on deck, drowning myself pity in gin. They they said later that it must have been a high wave that took me overboard. I don't know. To tell you the truth, I think I just fell off. After that, it's pretty hazy, but I wound up on a small island. The island was full of birds and feral sheep, but I damn near starved before I succeeded in making a bow that would shoot straight. And then I had to learn how to shoot it.
0: I really love the idea that he starved while... You yeah, know, I mean, you're starving while you're coming up with the thing to make food, just hoping it'll work. Anyway, it's, it's definitely yep. creates some uh, you know impetus for him to do what he does later yes, instead of just being the, a rich guy. Uh, you know. Yeah, is it, it necessity's the mother of invention? Oh, for sure, and you know, and killing an animal too. So, uh, a nice scrapbook <laughs> of a scraggly Ollie hunting some uh, a scrapbook photo of Ollie hunting an, some antelope, which I wonder who took that picture, but fine. Uh, he learned to hunt on an island and grew to love it.
1: <laughs> Something that serious Doesn't seem right to me Doesn't seem right to do it for fun When I left the island I, swear, I swore I'd never kill again And I kept that oath Except for the one time That's why I won't hunt animals mm.
0: uh, We think he's got to be referring To Flash number 217 To 219 That was the end of that hard traveling heroes run We talked about That would have been in mm. September, November, September 2 November 1972 Where O'Neil and Adam's uh, they finish up the run, and Ollie accidentally kills a sniper due to having a wounded arm, and he does penance at a monastery during that whole thing, an ashram, which I figures in later on in the run a couple of times. Yeah. Um, so Ollie wraps up his origin, how he caught some drug dealers operating from the island and commandeered their boat for passage back to the mainland. And then some more recap, Ollie loses his fortune, Speedy turns out to be a junkie, sort of like folds in his existing continuity, at least from you know, the late 60s when Denny O'Neill picked it up. Yeah, uh, so that's it. We get our nice, uh, nice secret origin of Oliver Queen.
1: Yes, yeah, so and he drones on so long that uh, when he comes to, <laughs> Dinah has left the room. <laughs> mm. But uh, she does return in her uh, black canary getup.
0: Yeah, wow, She says,
2: <laughs>
1: "Hey, Grandpa, how about one for the old days?" <laughs> and this is uh this is when she wore the wig so she it, it really had like short dark hair but she wore the the blonde wig
0: that was that was like part uh, of her disguise was to yep. put that on yeah i think she's actually is even wearing like An older version, I guess, of the costume, but I'm not... It seems like it. Yeah, it does to me. It's like a classic, classic canary.
1: Now, we do give the lovebirds some privacy so they can do what they do. Mm. Uh, But back on the rainy, cold Seattle streets, a police officer named Gina is undercover as a prostitute, trying to lure out the Seattle Slasher. She's got backup in a nearby car. Uh, Gina is approached by a woman and surmises that perhaps the Seattle Slasher isn't a man at all. Mm. Then she gets slashed to death, (laughs) implying that the woman we just saw is the slasher.
0: But stay tuned, gentle reader, because there's more to this story. Uh, Back at the castle, Ollie and Dinah are enjoying some pillow talk. Ollie asks Dinah to marry him.
2: Marry me, Dinah. And screw up a good relationship? She balks and asks why. What's missing, Oliver? Why is it you suddenly need more?
1: It's impolite to answer a question with another question. Come on, you know.
0: He asked <laughs> you, it's a yes or no, really. That's um, it. Ollie explains he would like to have a family
1: with her. Yeah, he says, Maybe I've been stricken with my own mortality. I'm going to be 43 years old this week. Somewhere I have a grandchild, sort of, but I don't have a child of my own. Roy's a hell of a kid, but he's not mine. Not really.
0: Gee, I wonder why he turned to drugs. What a father figure!
1: She's getting endorsement. <laughs> Yikes! <laughs> Dinah feels a bit differently. Like. Oliver, I, I don't want to have children. Come on, you love kids. Maybe part of what she loves is that she only sees them every now and again.
0: That's what I like about kids, frankly. You know, I mean, it's my, like, my favorite like a, part. Walk away from them. Dinah then uh, <laughs> explains herself. She says,
2: "What we do is important, Oliver." Not just to ourselves, but to a whole lot of people who depend on us to hold the line. We're in a deadly, dangerous business. You put your life on the line every time you put on that mask. When you go out on the street, you know there's a chance you're not coming back. That's part of the attraction, the thrill, the danger. I love you, Oliver, and I'd love to make babies
1: with you, but I won't make orphans. Hmm. Later, Ollie works on honing his arrowheads and practicing his archery. Elsewhere, a grave digger is killed with an arrow through the heart as he fills a grave.
2: Uh, <laughs> it's almost like reads, a non
0: sequitur of a scene. It's isn't like, it? Oh, what happened? But it, it it makes sense later. It does. It does. Uh, the headstone reads Ray Gunn. Yeah, I think that might have been. Mike silliness, political uh, commentary of of some sort.
1: (laughs) Now Dinah walks into uh, Ollie's workshop with an early birthday gift. It's a hood modeled after the one that Howard Hill is wearing in Ollie's painting of Robin Hood. And this is the new iconic uh, Green Arrow look here. Uh, Dinah says she's going to be gone for a few days, checking out the cocaine connection involved in Rita's case. Which I guess is a thing that happens if you're in a vigilante couple. Yeah, really. We'll see you in a few days. I mean, what well, would,
0: would you, your, if your wife said that, be like, oh, I'll be gone for, like, a, some amount of time looking at a co- cocaine connection. You'd be like, well, bring back milk when you come back. Yep. <laughs> Jeez. Anyway, uh, back on those gritty Seattle streets, the slasher isn't the only thing you got to worry about out there. There's three punk rockers, another one of them with a crummy mohawk, so you know he's mm-hmm. bad, and yes, two I... others that are less suscript. The script. They go to accost and they accost an attempt to rob an elderly couple.
1: Yeah, we get a caption that reads, To find the predator, you look for the prey. The vast grazing herds that provide the basis for the food chain. It's a myth that predators prey only on the weak. Mostly, it's a question of odds. Given the opportunity, the worst will prey on their own kind.
0: A green arrow shows up, really kind of appears, his bow already drawn.
1: There are all kinds of hunters. Some hunters survive. Some just want to watch things die. Some hunt the hunters.
0: (laughs) I guess that would be Ali. He fires an arrow through the is. dumb mohawk's hand, causing him to drop the knife. Shoots another arrow through a guy's ear, a- pinning him to the wall. Mm-hmm. And another arrow just below the crotch of the last hoodlum, also kind of pinning him to the wall in fear. Ollie interrogates the thugs.
1: He says, you punks live on the street. You see everything that goes on. But you're not talking because no one's asked you the right way.
0: One of the punks says... Don't tell him nothing. Another guy says,
2: You ain't supposed to do this, man. We got rights.
0: Yeah, you have the right to
1: remain silent.
0: Ollie kind of springs, kind of twangs the arrow yeah, through the that one looks thug's painful. ear, making it <laughs> bounce back and forth. Well, <laughs> <is> <laughs> <in> <laughs> plenty of discomfort. And you know, another comic, it would say, but it doesn't. But the punk does say,
2: Ow,
0: ow, 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 ow. <laughs> and uh, they eventually give up the name of a guy that lives in the Seattle Underground named the Tunnel Rat. Ollie shoots another arrow at the other guy, at that guy's crotch, splitting the original arrow in two. <laughs> it's like, wow. Uh, he's stunned, and he that thug faints dead away.
1: Yes. Now, the Seattle Underground is a network of underground passageways and basements in downtown Seattle that was ground level in the uh, mid-19th century. A raised sewer pipe that actually ran along the main streets, streets made the area uninhabitable during high tides. So they decided to move the entire city up a floor, leaving the ground-level spaces in disrepair.
0: You can you can visit that, by the way. and It's, it's, a, it's probably that's fascinating. one of the most worthwhile tours. There's more to this story, but uh, yeah, I recommend it.
1: Mm. Now, Ollie creeps through the Seattle underground past disheveled storefronts and broken beams. Uh, he comes upon a hovel uh, containing some army effects like combat boots and a field jacket. He sees uh, some newspaper clippings and medals that further imply that the fellow is a veteran. Uh, also, some newspaper articles about serial killers, or maybe a serial killer.
0: No, yeah, it's it's this guy, Chris. <laughs> yeah. There's
1: no question. <laughs> <All> he, <laughs> all he thinks to himself, this is him. Somewhere in this is the key to seven months of slaughter. He checks out the guy's boots. And he continues to think, size seven, a little guy. Yeah, that's about right for a tunnel rat. Jeez, I didn't even know the guy. Like, come on. (laughs) I know. So
0: so he's short, you know what I mean? It doesn't mean (laughs) so. Anyway, Ollie looks at a newspaper clipping of three soldiers posing in the jungle. And we're guessing that this is from an army newspaper, because why else would this be? It doesn't look like the cover of the uh, Washington Post or anything. Um, So it's probably from Stars and Stripes, which is an army uh, periodical that we've actually talked about on this show before. We did, uh, and uh, one of the newspaper clippings from the previous page is from Stars and Stripes. So that's that's the guess.
1: Yes, Ali says he's one of those kids straight out of high school. When they should have been thinking about fast cars, suntan blondes, and long summer nights, they were being taught to kill.
0: And then Ali, or the you know panel, kind of zeroes in on the guy on the left of the group.
1: Only this one liked it.
0: And just then, Ollie is knocked on the back
1: of the head. Dun dun dun! Mm-hmm. The lantern he was carrying breaks and sets the place on fire. And then Ollie gets kicked in the head for good measure.
0: They didn't have flashlights in '87. Is that what was that? What it was, Chris? They didn't, I think they didn't that's make right. them yet. Yeah. Uh, yet. The guy that hit him says, "I've been watching you. You're very good." But you can't stop me. None of them could, not in Chicago or Atlanta or here. This is my world, underground. Stop me if
1: you can. (laughs) Sounds like a challenge. (laughs) (laughs) There's a flashback that implies that this fellow's name is Budry, or Budry. Uh, He murdered a woman while in Vietnam, and the army covered it up. Uh, Meanwhile, Ollie gets out of the burning hovel while Budry is following a prostitute with his knife drawn. Atop the roof of a narrow building, a woman in a mouth mask with a dragon tattoo on her shoulder has her bow drawn, trained on some guy uh, talking on a payphone. Uh, we'll learn that this is Shadow next issue. Yeah, not here, but...
0: Um, I just want to say that the, that the page, the the spread we're talking about where we see the flashback of Boudry in Vietnam, plus Ali getting out of the hovel, plus the prostitute. It's really interesting the way it's laid out, how they express all these things kind of happening simultaneously. Yeah. Uh, you gotta see it. It's hard to describe as usual, but it, it's a pretty interesting comic book storytelling choice. Anyway, the fellow on the phone on the street says, We got real trouble here. Wolchek is dead. Four of the others, too. I checked. I tell you, somebody's killing us off. Somebody knows.
1: <laughs> Why well, you keep yelling your business on a public payphone, and soon everyone's going to know. Yeah, really, come on. <laughs> a little discretion. <laughs> what follows is a real tense, crazy page where Budry is about to knife the prostitute while Ollie tries to pull an arrow from his quiver, but he will be too late. Uh, Shadow winds up shooting Boudry right in the chest.
0: Yeah, and then draws again and immediately shoots the guy on the phone, who is now driving away, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is like, whoa, she's just took charge of the situation, yeah. Uh, (laughs) He crashes into a pillar, and Shadow then just, she takes off from there. Prostitute makes it back to her pimp, and he cuts her up, so, you know. (laughs) Um, a, a newspaper headline reads Robin Hood killer slays two in Seattle Another headline reads Slasher's death toll reaches 20 So they think that that obviously was The work of the slasher Ali mm-hmm. uh, considers the scene of the crimes And examines Shadow's arrow
1: Yeah, And he thinks to himself No evidence, nothing, just bodies Sometimes the killers are never caught Or fall victim to others like themselves Sometimes there are no answers Only more questions hmm. And that's that.
0: Yeah, and uh, hopefully those get answered in the next couple of issues that we are gonna we're gonna chat about you know, kinda of do a quick wrap up of these.
1: Certainly this green arrow, the longbow hunt is number two, September 1987. Title is Dragon Hunt. Uh, green Arrow heads to the police to tell them what he knows of the Robin Hood killer. Uh, her lighter arrow suggests that the murderer may just be a woman. It's uh, sort of weird to see Green Arrow just chilling out with the cops, though. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Especially since, you know, he kind of has a bow and arrow, and the... Robin Hood Killer uses arrows, and yeah, you figure he might be a suspect. I mean, I really,
0: I really thought that would be a, a part of the story. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, you figure, like, right? Oh, man, he's got to—he's got to like convince them he's, he's not the Robin in. Hood. But yeah. they don't even—no one even suspect, suspects him. He's totally cool hanging out in the cops in broad daylight. It's great.
1: His reputation precedes him. Yeah. Uh, now, Ali and the te- the detective theorize that there is a military connection between the victims. Uh, the police aren't convinced that the Seattle Slash is dead because that pimp did the same work last issue. Uh, Oliver returns home to find Di- Dinah Lance has left again, maybe, or is this yeah. the same? Or is, <laughs> is this the same day? I'm not uh, sure.
0: You're right. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It seems like I don't know. Yeah, but but she's she's left a note this time.
1: This is true. Uh, <laughs> uh, she's she's still out uh, investigating a lead in the cocaine trade. Uh, Ollie snoops on Dinah undercover the next morning, but thinks better of revealing his presence. Yeah. Uh,
0: later, Green Arrow confronts Shadow, who says he doesn't have the eyes of a killer. She fires and she fires an arrow at him that seems to miss, but actually hits her intended target on the street. That's how good she is. Mm-hmm. Back at home, soaking in the tub, Ollie because he got also gets his booty handed to him by Shadow. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Uh, Ollie hears a newscast about the man he saw Dinah with earlier, and he's been found dead in a dumpster. So he leaps out of the bathtub and traces Dinah to Magnor Shipping. Uh, at the warehouse, Ollie finds the same drug runners from the beginning of the issue. And in this warehouse, Dinah is restrained and being tortured.
1: Mm-hmm. Just
0: as she's about to be further disfigured, an arrow flies straight through the, uh, you know, torturer's chest. Dude, yeah. Yeah. Shadow kills everyone and blows up the warehouse while Ali and Dinah escape. <laughs> so that was nice and taken care of.
1: She does not mess around.
0: I, she, I mean, she really quickly becomes a pretty <clears throat> interesting character. Uh, In Green Arrow, Longbow Hunters number 3 That was cover dated October 1987 That title is Tracking Snow Ali is at Dinah's side in the hospital Where he's asked to meet with Lieutenant James Cameron of the police That's the same guy from before Uh, Mm -hmm. Cameron shares evidence that Dinah's torturer Had been a military man, but had found a a way To erase the record of it A tattoo artist explains to Ali that the tattoo On Shadow's arm is related to the Yakuza Those Japanese uh, Crime mafia, Mafia, yeah. yeah In a flashback, it's shown that a young shadow was trained by the Yakuza in archery in order to redeem her father's honor honor, after she was shamefully killed by people.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a whole thing about the CIA covering for Magnor Shipping's uh, drug production. A very prescient story Mike Grell says he pieced together from reading the news. Uh this would not officially come to light until 1996, when yeah. journalist Gary Webb published an explosive article about it in the San Jose Mercury News. I,
0: I found I found this fascinating, though. I mean, nine, totally. nine years before the, the the truth about this came out, and even then, it wasn't really accepted as fact for a number of years through lawsuits. Certainly. Uh now it is a matter of historical fact. But yeah, Mike Grell in an interview just said that he was reading the news and and pieced together a together. story based on these <laughs> things. Yeah, it's interesting.
1: That's crazy. Uh, now Ollie tracks shadow to a park and uh, finds himself held at arrow point by her. Uh, she explains that they have common goals to kill the drug runners about to uh, show up on that spot. Uh, shadow now sees that Ollie does in fact have killer's eyes. He grew into them. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, He took the contacts out. Um, a helicopter carrying drug runners arrives. Uh, the deal involves a trade of three hundred and fifty thousand dollars in unmarked bills for a large amount of cocaine—a very large amount. Uh, Osborne uh, suggests that the deal is a is a way for the CIA to encourage democracy in Central America, though he's he's kind of insincere about that.
0: But, I mean, here's all the details of that. You know, they pretty the stuff much that come out later. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: everything goes nuts. The drug runners escape. Uh, in the scuffle, Ollie winds up with a bag of cash. Uh, later, Ollie talks to one of the drug runners who explains that he and his buddies ran a Japanese internment camp during World War II and probably killed Shadow's father by you know, being jerks. He then gets shot in the chest by, in the chest by an arrow. Uh, Ollie goes back to the hospital, apologizes to Dinah for that crack about children, and reveals that they have a sack of money now. All's well that ends weird.
0: Yeah, that was kind of a strange (laughs) ending. Kind of like, hey, look, I get to rip off some drug dealers for over a quarter million dollars. How about that? Um, But overall, I I really did enjoy these three issues. uh, Besides the, you know... Chris knows that I'm always very tickled by experiments with the comics language sure and there's a lot of that in these in these issues really uh, pushing you know I think what you average what the average person would think of the way a comic page should be laid out and a story should be told some successes some not so successes right
1: mm-hmm. yeah o- I'd say so
0: overall I like the I love seeing the attempt and uh, this also is not I think I think Chris might agree too this isn't really the type of story that definitely I would read. It's sort sure. of a noir. It really is sort of a slow-paced noir story, uh, a more of a detective story, like an old-style detective story or an adventurer story. Than you know, it's typical... very pulpy, yeah. Yep, ex- I think that's a, that's a great way to describe it. And I think that was you know by intent. But that being said, I found it really engrossing and engaging. You know, we glossed over, our, you know, when I did the script, the uh, the names of all these drug runners. I just kind of wanted to tell the story quickly as possible. But that is pretty interesting. Uh, relationship between these guys also within the books that's worth examining even though they all die in the end anyway so it doesn't really come to a lot of uh, long term stuff but uh, what did you think? You, you, you gave it a look
1: Yeah I thought it was great um, it was because uh, my introduction to Green Arrow was through uh, the Grel run um, oh, really? I'd, actually, yeah, I'd actually read this after probably the first 20 to 30 issues of the series uh, cause I was unable to find it. Uh, and now I'm able to find it every time I turn over a rock, I see it. But, uh, <laughs> but back, uh, back, you know, like 10, 15 years ago, I, I couldn't find it. At least I couldn't find it at a, at a reasonable price. Interesting. Um, but I did read the, uh, but somehow I was able to come into the, you know, the entire Grell run for, uh, for a pretty good deal. Nice. But, uh, yeah, see, reading reading all that first, and then reading this to see how how it shifted into the series that that follows it, it was was great.
0: Yeah, I, when I you know, I I believe I saw this as a kid, and I definitely would have kind of skipped it probably because a you know I, I was uh, Green Arrow is never like really been one of my top favorite characters that I really chased down. But also, I was like 11, and I think I would have been like, this looks too, I don't see enough laser blasts, you know, where are the, where the <laughs> I-beams, where, where's the flying around, what's going on? Um, but I read it, the, the trade came out, gosh, I don't know, uh, there are a few trades actually, but the a, a trade came out two years ago or something like that, and mm-hmm. I got that, and I, I enjoyed the heck out of it, and uh, actually ended up having to give it away, but now I'm talk, telling a story that who cares. <laughs> uh, about what I did with the trade collection of the Longbow Hunters. But I'll tell you, it, is, it seems like a landmark work. It seems like, to me, if you're going to read one, here's the one to read, right? Uh, Absolutely. You know, and, and it definitely makes me interested to read more of Grell's take on the character that we will be talking about after the break. Mm-hmm.
1: Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of Mike Grell, including Warlord, John Sable, Star Slayer, Shaman's Tears, and Green Arrow. I'm Darren.
2: And I'm Ruth. join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in the many excellent comics from writer and artist Mike Grell.
1: Warlord Worlds is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Find us at warlordworlds.com.
0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the Cosmic Treadmill. You know, this I believe is the second time, Chris, that we have a in-show correction. Yes. Right? I don't, I can't remember exactly what the first one was, but uh, I just said, or I, I forget which one of us said it, but in discussing the uh, Green Arrow Longbow Hunters number two, I mentioned that Shadow kills the person torturing Dinah. Yeah. The capturer. Um, and Chris said that that can't be true because you know a story after the Longbow Hunters that deals with Oliver's guilt, right? Yeah. Over killing that mm-hmm. guy. And we, we went back and looked at it, and I'll tell you to look at it straight on, it, it still to me it looks it's like fabulous. it definitely implies that Shadow killed killed the guy. But when you see the arrow sticking out of his back, it has green fletching. Yep. So I would I say that yeah, green arrow actually killed him. It's it's you have to see the scene to understand though. It definitely keeps it sort of up in the air. And if mm-hmm. and as as I haven't, if you haven't read the stuff after, you definitely walk away from this thinking, I think that Shadow killed the guy. But. Uh, we're going to say that that's not canon, folks, that it was Oliver killed Dinah's torturer and rescued his lady, and everything was groovy after that. Hunky-dory. So speaking of uh, what happened after Longbow Hunters, we're going to talk about some more Green Arrow, what happened after Longbow Hunters. Uh, You know, Mike Mike Grell's changes to Oliver Queen in the Longbow Hunters, they would stick around for his entire run. Uh, they was put under DC's mature audiences line, and this was a darker take on the character with no trick arrows and plenty of murder throughout the whole series. Mm-hmm. He loses his domino mask and is never called Green Arrow or Arrow throughout the whole series because Grell thought it was a stupid
1: name. I love that, because you don't even realize it. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I found out about that during, in one of those uh, Comics Legends Revealed um, series uh, yeah. articles on, on CBR. I, I read about that, like, maybe 10 years ago.
0: It's Couldn't it's, believe it. It's interesting, though, because <laughs> and, and usually in in most other comics, they can't stop saying the hero's name. You know, it's exactly. like so sort of ridiculous. Things. What are you doing, Green Lantern? Well, I don't know. I'm Green Lantern. You know, it's like, they, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's very subtle, and uh, you know, they they keep it more street and realistic as, as possible. Sure. Now, though, Ollie does appear in crossovers and during events. It, it seems to have no bearing on what Mike Grell was doing in his solo series, and it never seemed to acknowledge many of the larger events going on. Uh, right yeah, around he's actually, it. He's actually
1: he's actually in uh, briefly. Yeah. He's in Millennium, oh, yeah. which I'm suffering through right now. <laughs> yes, I, I know. Uh, <laughs> and it, it's weird to see you know uh, the 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 you know, the Grell Arrow in uh, yeah. among the other heroes.
2: Yeah, but it's
0: you know just I don't think he brought that back with him back to the uh, Grell, no, Grell. No, not to Grell the Arrow issues. <laughs> Now, even when old buddy Hal Jordan comes to visit in Green Arrow uh, 19 and 20, June and July 1989, he's wearing civilian clothes, and there's no ring slinging. They just talk. Nope. So it's uh, definitely weird. It's very street-level. Dinah never uses her canary cry and is sometimes explained as having been damaged during her torture of the Longbow Hunters, though her other appearances in the DCU contradicted this. Yeah. <laughs> in Green Arrow number 11, December 1988, Ali is injured and while tending to his fe- fever state, Shadow rapes him and ultimately becomes pregnant with his child. This seems to bother only Dinah later on, who gives both Shadow and Ollie a piece of her mind. I think that would play differently these days. What do you think, Chris? Probably. Probably. <laughs> uh, the kid is named Robert after Oliver's father, and then stuff—really too complicated to detail—happens to this, this fellow Robert. But eventually, he is wiped away, so kind of becomes uh, a non-issue. Mike Grell's final issue was number eighty in November nineteen ninety-three. So that's a long, that's a healthy run,
1: boy. Absolutely, and uh, even in during this issue, he uh, teams up with uh, Warlord Travis Morgan. Oh wow! Interesting. And he's actually since they have very similar facial hair, they're mistaken for one another. It's, <laughs> I can it's, see that. Pretty yeah. funny. Old it's D. pretty D. funny. It's funny. <laughs> now, after issue 80, DC got right back to reestablishing establishing Ali within the DC universe proper with the Crossword Crossroads story. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the story as well Uh, Dinah dumps him uh, for an affair That he has with a younger woman And Ollie leaves Seattle to go on a cross-country Jaunt to reintroduce himself to the Greater DCU It's a very strange period for Ollie which portrays him Straight up killing and terrorizing Yeah Not his best look (laughs) (laughs) The title was, uh, before even Grell left, the title was pulled from the Mature Audiences line, uh, which, you know, that would be saved for the Vertigo books. And uh, this would be around issue 63 that that happens. Um, Ollie was seated as a guest hero in other titles, notably in Green Lantern number 47, uh, cover date November 1993. Their heroic and very oddly placed reunion, right between the fall of Coast City and (laughs) Emerald Twilight. It's strange. It's the one issue between (laughs) the fall of Coast City. City and Hal going nuts.
0: It's kind of cool that he got to, like, address him there, though, you know, and deal with him.
1: (laughs) They got to say goodbye. Yeah. Uh, They get to say goodbye again. Yeah. uh, Because he eventually figured prominently in the Zero Hour crossover in uh, 94 uh, when he would uh, be forced to shoot his buddy Hal, who was then imbued with the spirit of Parallax, the the giant yellow fear bug, Mm. and uh, attempting to erase and rewrite DC Continuity. Uh, Post Zero Hour in Green Green Arrow number zero, October 1994, Ollie heads back to the monastery that he visited at the end of the Hard Traveling Heroes run when he had had accidentally killed that sniper we mentioned earlier. Uh, He's pretty bent out of shape for, you know, apparently having to kill his best pal, Hal Jordan. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, while he's there, he meets a young monk named Connor Hawke, who helps to get him over himself. Uh, Connor would actually wind up returning to, with Ollie to civilization, uh, becoming his sidekick. The ghost of Hal Jordan, was he, was it the ghost of Hal Jordan or was he the specter at this point?
0: Um, I'm, to be honest, I'm not sure. I'm taking, I'm taking third hand, although it would make more sense to be specter
1: Jordan, but, uh. Yeah. Well, either way, in comics, in a theor- it could go either way. An <laughs> ethereal Hal Jordan yeah. reveals that Connor is, in fact, Oliver's son, who he, can, who he conceived in his 20s with a hippie woman named Sandra Hawk. <laughs> Uh, in Green Arrow, number one hundred and one hundred one, September October nineteen ninety five, Oliver dies, uh, sacrificing himself for Metropolis. Uh, he's threatened uh, with a bomb by uh, the Metropolis was threatened by a bomb with a bomb by eco terrorists. Uh, he was like in an, like a helicopter that exploded or something.
0: Yeah, I saw, I saw the image.
1: And after this, uh, Connor would uh, he would take over the mantle and uh, hood of Green Arrow for a time.
0: Yeah, uh, for for a lot of people, this became their Green Arrow. He. Connor joined the Justice League. It takes up the trick arrows again, so somewhat. It's still never as, never as wacky as it ever was no. in Silver Age. But no Silver Age. Yeah. He's got a couple, a couple of tricks up his quiver or whatever.
1: Uh, those were all written by Grant Morrison, who has a quite a fondness for quite <laughs>
0: the a Silver penchant Age. for that kind of thing, yes. exactly. Uh, but it doesn't matter because Oliver comes back to life. His spirit <laughs> re- reunited with his body, so he can defeat stanley dover of stanley and his monster sure uh-huh that was in the kevin smith run which he claims uh-huh. to have been heavily influenced by the longbow hunters but i wouldn't know uh we're introduced to the new speedy it's mia De- deirdrin she was a runaway and a teen prostitute ultimately revealed to have aids because john wittig was writing at the time uh That's one of his tricks she, yeah. she kind of came and came and went in, in some way <laughs> Following Infinite Crisis, one year later, Oliver becomes mayor of Star City, so he has a successful run for mayor, uh, and he'd finally marry Dinah Lance, started an offshoot Justice League along with Hal Jordan, who would be more proactive in their approach to crime fighting. Their adventures ran in Justice League Cry for Justice, and there was much crying to be had, and I did cry to read that also. Yes. <laughs> Ollie's sort of kind of granddaughter Leanne, that's Roy and Cheshire's daughter, that he said was his grand kid, but he did but sort Roy of. wasn't his kid, <laughs> uh, is killed.
1: The, yeah, the uh, her- heredity uh, skips a generation. Yeah, exactly,
0: really, exactly. <laughs> more attached to her than Roy. Uh, Ollie kills supervillain Prometheus and is sort of ostracized from the heroine community, and Dinah dumps him. His figures, he figures prominently into the Pri- brightest day crossover, where after Star City's destroyed, It's filled with a lush green forest that Ollie works out of. Then the New 52 Same guy, but mysteriously younger uh, Similar backstory, but I believe There were like uh, I don't know, paramilitary Guys on the island that he was stuck on and Stuff, it gets all crazy Hmm. And then in that we learn more about His training as an archer and a ninja And I think that carries on to the rebirth I believe, although I have not read that since The first couple of issues
1: we gotta make sure it's as close to the TV show as possible.
0: Uh, yeah. I think that's that's where we're matching it up. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, a little bit more information on Lorene Haynes. Uh, she wrote and illustrated Clive Barker's Hellraiser, came out through uh, Marvel's Epic line in 1990. Uh, she painted a seven-page story, hostage Situation, for Star Trek: Deep Space Nine by Malibu. That was July of 1993. She illustrated Star Wars Galaxy Trading Cards for Tops in '93. Uh, At some point, post-Longbow Hunters, she divorced her husband, Dave Dorman, who was a very well-regarded science fiction and horror painter. Uh, He had a best-selling coffee table book titled The Star Wars Art of Dave Dorman by Random House in 1996. Mm, Star Wars, huh? Seems like
0: something similar there, but all right. Maybe.
1: Uh, <laughs> I now published two books in 1998 but, uh, about pretty similar topics. we got The Business of Comics, Everything a Comic Book Artist Needs to Make It in the Business, plus interviews with 40 comic book professionals. Came out through Watson Guptill in 1998. Also, The Writer's Guide to the Business of Comics, Everything a Comic Book Writer Needs to Make It in the Business. Same publisher, same year.
0: No interviews on that one, sorry.
1: Oh. Uh, apparently, they're as much about professional presentation as they are about creative direction. Yeah. Uh, she would retire from comics in 1999. spent two years as writer-artist-in-residence at the Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C. Uh, she opened or tried to open a 1950s-style diner restaurant with her life partner, Steve White, and would pass away May 2nd, 2015. Uh, Mr. White would have passed away a month earlier during emergency surgery.
0: Yeah, I don't really have a ton of details on how that happened, and I don't know that we need any. But you know, I was pretty surprised to see that uh, her life was cut off recently and you know quite early.
2: But yeah. it's
0: too bad. Um, going to finish up with Mike Grell uh, with the Longbow Hunters. Mike Grell redesigned Green Arrow's costume and reimagined him as an 80 as an urban hunter, shedding him of trick arrows, as we've been talking about. This led to his 80 issue run where Grell wrote and sometimes drew from 88 to 93. In 1988, Grell would also write a Blackhawk feature in Action Comics Weekly from 601 to 608. He would write Green Arrow's Retold Origin in Secret Origins, Volume 2, Number 38. That was March 1989. Mike Grell wrote and illustrated the official post-crisis origin of Green Arrow in Green Arrow, the Wonder Year miniseries in 1993. You ever read that one? Yep. I've I've, I've seen that around. I've never checked that out, but uh, I wonder if that's... That's is it similar to longbow hunters in like a kind of like a setting a status quo or is it more just a straight like his first year as a.
1: It's it's on it starts on the island if I'm not mistaken because I think uh, I think Andy Diggle and Jock did a uh, it was a either a six to tw- or twelve issue mini series um, much later on uh, that was similar in uh, in scope and uh, purpose. Do you remember? I just don't remember what it was called. Do
0: you remember if the early Green Arrow was wearing red boots? Like the old age, that would be hilarious. That
1: would be funny, huh?
0: Um, (laughs) Anyway, but yeah, this would would introduce his surviving on a remote island as part of the origin. Before this, the implication was that Oliver Queen fought crime as Green Arrow because he felt like it sort of what's introduced in the uh, Longbow Hunters, you know. But, yeah, before this, that was one thing that always got me the Green Arrow, was say he was like Batman, but with no impetus to do what he just did. Bored. Just bored. <laughs> just a bored, rich guy. And the fact that his, his ward was Roy Harper Jr., so he's named after his dead father? I mean, it's kind of, I don't know... <laughs> Anyway, uh, published creator, uh, he published, sorry, Mike Grell published creator owned Shaman's Tears in May 1993 to August 95 through Image. It was a 12 issue series. And John Sable, his own character, guest starred in issues 5 through 9. Grell wrote and did covers for issues 1 through 4 of Bar Sinister. That was June through September 95. That was a Shaman Tears spinoff published by Windjammer, Valiant's creator owned imprint also did a crossover with Turok the Dinosaur Hunter and some other work for Valiant at this time probably a trade off if i had to guess probably from 2002 to 2003 grell worked on iron man and during that time he revealed himself or iron man not not mike grell revealed <laughs> himself to be tony stark by saving a dog from being hit from a, by a car yep so that's i guess what it is uh, today he does some covers for DC and Marvel, and is still tooling with his screenplay for John Sable freelance.
1: Certainly, certainly. Um, now, you know, uh, one of the one of the hallmarks of the series is that Ali celebrated a birthday every year, mm-hmm. which is kind of unheard of in comics because we have that crazy sliding scale that is, you know, it's sometimes five years, sometimes seven years, sometimes yeah. <laughs> sometimes just don't think about it. Um, but uh, so we wanted to discuss instances where time in comics. Was played with, uh, you know, where where years went through as years where. Well, I, I think
0: people... this is where you're going to explain the unified comic book time theory, right? You're going to explain yes. it all to everybody <clears throat> yes. so they can easily. Yeah. Okay. Good.
1: <laughs> I wrote it on the back of a napkin, but then <laughs> grand and wrote hyper time over it. There so you know, go. I, couldn't, uh, I couldn't. I couldn't read it anymore. <laughs> But uh, like we said here, you know, one of the hallmarks of Grell's run is that Ollie does age every single year, so he doesn't have 15 Christmases to one birthday. Right. Um, now it, it's he mentions in the first issue of the Lone Hunters that he's he's not a kid; he's 43 years old. It's uh, even and, crazier, you know what I mean? Which is insane, right? Yeah. Uh, now it's a little unusual for a superhero to be that old. Never mind having a you know you can actually put his birthday on a calendar yep. as as a year and a and a month there. Uh, most superheroes are, or at least were, because <laughs> they were written about the perpetual age of 29 until that was no longer relatable.
0: It seems like that, yeah. Now they're all, yes. like, 18 to 23
2: or something? I don't know what it is. Yeah.
1: <laughs> now, uh... Uh, Mike Grell made the decision to write Ollie at Midlife purposefully. He says, The reason why I made it a point to age my characters was that early on in the 70s, I had a discussion with Julia Schwartz over a line in a Green Arrow story in which Ollie says something, 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 whatever, I'm not even 30 yet. And I said, that's impossible. And he said, no, 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 none of our characters are over 30 because readers can't relate to anyone over 30. They think that over 30 is over the hill. So I'm pretty sure that's where we are. Yeah. And I said, said, that's totally ridiculous. How long would you say Green Arrow and Speedy have been together? Could you believe that the state had awarded Green Arrow custody of Speedy? What about Batman and Robin? Are you going to tell me that the state was going to award custody of a 15-year-old boy to a 29-year-old male bachelor? Really? (laughs) And so, when I had the opportunity to create Warlord and then John Sable, I made it a point to make those characters not just over 30, but over 40.
0: And you know, I gotta gotta, gotta agree with him there. You know, what I mean, if you really if you really get to think about it, it's a little uh, it's a little silly. Yeah. So, uh, and you know, that's part of what we're all gonna, we're gonna be talking about <laughs> here. Is, uh, Mike Gross characters aside, most superheroes are written to be around 30, or they were. Now they seem to be skew younger. And when I was a kid. I don't know about you. For some reason, I had all the all the main ones at thirty-five. I have a theory about that. What 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 is that?
1: I I think I I know at least for me, I always put them at my father's age. Hmm. I don't know if that's if that resonates, but that's how I always did it. Like when my father was, you know, twenty-five. That that sort of I was too young then. But I mean, when he was thirty, that's the heroes were thirty.
0: Yeah, I think that might exactly be it. Because come to think of it, the time that I was, you know, this time in the eighties. Mm. Um, he and my dad would have been about, uh, he actually would have been coming up on 35 and then yeah, by the end would have crossed the threshold to, uh, 40 in that time. So that might have something to do with it. But I think also in my mind, I was thinking a similar thing along the line to this, where it's like, all right, if Batman's got a ward, right? Sure. He got him when he was 10. And now, and now Nightwing is at least 18. He's in college, yeah. right? So, you know, Batman had to get him when he was about 30. So he's got to be like 35 to 40. Sure. You know what I mean? Like, I think I was doing a little bit of the math in my head, which <laughs> is uh, why they had to establish these crazy time rules. It was for uh, people like yeah. me that couldn't quite wrap their heads around it. <laughs> now, in the first few decades of comic books, continuity was fine because it didn't exist. The stories weren't contiguous. Uh, they didn't matter. So they could have happened in the same year, or even in the same day, or it was irrelevant when they happened. There was no no connective tissue between these comics. It was Marvel and Stan Lee in the 60s that would first introduce continuity in comic stories, and this would eventually necessitate a sliding timescale, particularly since these Marvel characters were often tied to real-world events, like Reed Richards and Ben Grimm having fought in World War II. Uh, Also, their origin stories were tied to events like Fantastic Four. They flew into cosmic rays as part of the space race against Russia. And Tony Stark was developing weapons for use by the U.S. in the Vietnam War. I mean, all these stories really grew out of the Cold War. So when when the Cold War effectively ended in in 1990... Suddenly, all your Mar- Marvel heroes have have a reason to have you know been doing what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, Marvel dealt with this in the first foo- in the first place by using a kind of elastic time. A year of comic books does not equal the year in actual time, or sometimes it can't. It can, and then it won't later. So yes. you know you got you got to work on the fly <laughs> to make things even trickier. Time can happen at different speeds in different books. So, yep. <laughs> oh, man.
1: I, I... I've seen uh, I've seen single panels in Chris Claremont comics that they spout off 6000 words. So yeah. I how did that happen? There.
0: Yeah, time really slowed down in that one panel.
1: No, I'm just being pithy. But <laughs> no, by the end of the 60s when DC started to deal with continuity, things got complicated. Mm-hmm. Now, while most of the Silver Age characters weren't tied to specific world events, they did have a multiverse, or a multiple-Earths concept, where the, uh, you know, the Golden Age heroes were, had been tied to, the World War, to World War II on Earth, too. Uh, not to mention the conflicting story origin stories of characters like Wonder Woman. Uh, she would actually become her own mother in the post-crisis <laughs> continuity. Yep. Uh, Hippolyta was revealed to be the Wonder Woman from the Justice Society. Another very similar case is the the woman we talked about earlier, Dinah Lance, who became her own mother in quite the same fashion. Uh, Dinah Senior was the Black Canary of the Justice Society, while our our Dinah was uh, she actually replaced Wonder Woman as a founding member of the Justice League. That's so post-crisis. weird, you know.
0: And I mean, and not even, I don't want to get into it, but just to say <laughs> the name Donna Troy. That's like a no. mess of huge proportions. <laughs> it's all continuity smashed or whatever.
1: Who is Donna Troy?
2: <laughs>
1: Good question. <laughs> DC dealt with this wisely by not addressing it,
2: more or less. Yeah, you'll find
1: it was kind
0: of their thing for a while.
1: <laughs> Don't think about it. <laughs> Here, look at the Legion. They're in the 31st century. Um, now, by the late 70s, Marvel had to start altering certain facts as their characters were being prematurely aged. Uh, ben Grimm was now a test pilot instead of fighting in World War II, for instance.
0: Yeah, wouldn't have, he would have been really old by that time. Yeah, like Tony
1: Stark. Stark was in a different war. I mean, it, were, it was just I, I, in... They
0: put him at a different point in the war because, you know, when they, yeah. you know, in the first Iron Man, which I think was 63,
1: I want to say, 4? Well, or Avengers number one was 63, so probably 62.
0: All right, so it was even earlier. So, I mean, Tony Stark was actually developing weapons for the Vietnam War before the U.S. was officially involved. Yeah. Uh, so I think later on, they just kind of put him in during U.N. U.S. involvement, and now I believe he's had, had having worked in the... Uh, 90s Iraq War, Operation I Desert Storm. I believe that's what it is now. They keep sliding. Luckily, we keep having wars. There so you go. So as, as, as long as we keep having war, there will always be a reason for, for superheroes to have begun.
1: <laughs> Tony Stark will make sense as long as we so, keep having war.
0: So, yeah. Keep it up. Keep, keep it up, folks. Thank you. Anyway, uh, in the late 1970s and early 1980s, there were clearly problems with the timeline uh, in all comics, but it's about DC. Dick Grayson had grown up and gone to college, but Bruce Wayne appeared to be the same age. Uh, also, all the sidekicks <laughs> aged up and eventually joined, you know, as we know, the new Teen Titans.
1: And then uh, they were just the new Titans after the, they were no longer teens.
0: Exactly, but they, they simply went into their 20s. Meanwhile, yep. the, the heroes, the other heroes, have not aged today. Haven't hit uh, 30 yet. <laughs> so, DC dealt with this problem by not looking at it directly. He kind of had to take a look at it out of the side <laughs> of your eye. Uh, also in the 1980s, the passage of time in Marvel Was being marked in a slower progression The events since Fantastic Four ni- number 1 in 1962 And the present were referred to as having happened in compressed time mm-hmm. DC, on the other hand, concocted the ultimate continuity fix With <laughs> yeah, Crisis on Infinite Earths by Marv Wolfman and George Perez And they've been trying to fix it ever since With successive crises and reboots Never has been totally fixed. Sort of like putting gum on a uh, leak or something. Yeah. In the 1990s, Marvel would simply avoid talking about real-world events that could age their characters, although there was no longer a line-wide timescale. I think probably due to Jim Shooter's departure. Very uh, likely. That guy ran a tight ship, and I think under his watch, he made sure continuity worked. And it did when when he was it there. It did. Um, Marvel, sometimes ridiculously, sometimes Spider-Man had to, you know, take a day trip to...
1: <laughs> you know, like, everything had go. to be accounted for.
0: But yeah. it, but it, but yeah, it, there was always something accounted for. Um, Marvel has since classified that all stories are occurring in the present time uh, that have been published after Fantastic Four. They're part of the modern age, a.k.a. the Marvel Age or the Age of Heroes, without referencing any particular century. So they're all always happening now, no matter how far back you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of Marvel's continuity is said to have happened in roughly 15 years as of 2017. Fantastic Four, one being the Genesis, and some two thousand two, <laughs> exactly. that's exactly when happened. It would have happened in two thousand two, not mistakenly. Also after two thousand one, something that they don't have to yep. therefore yep. address. Uh, mm-hmm. And then some new rules will be established in twenty eighteen that will kind of, exp- it's kind of explained why in a minute.
1: Yeah, uh, we also uh, have some uh, awkward kind of mandated age changes. Uh, uh, a lot of folks know uh, Kitty Pride uh, as an X-Man, but uh, for a while she was on Excalibur and she uh, matured while she was on Excalibur, and started dating a fellow by the name of Pete Wisdom, who uh, it's very <laughs> heavily implied that they uh, they had some intimate time together. Mm-hmm. Uh, when she was brought back to the X-Men fold and then Chris Claremont came back to the X-Men fold one of the first things she said was but i'm only 16 mm. so uh, <laughs> brings her back to being a teenager instead of a young adult and
0: uh you, she could have said i'm i'm only you know a six tuplet Maybe,
1: but it's so either he wipes away that she was intimate with Pete Wisdom, or just makes the entire event a little bit more creepy than it was. Mm. Uh, now we also have uh, you know these young teams that start up, like we talked about Generation X a little while ago. Mm. You know, Jubilee when she was first introduced looked to be maybe sixteen, seventeen, but when Generation X started, she was shifted back to like thirteen. Um, you know, just like Robin uh, to the Tim Drake version, Impulse and Superboy at the start of Young Justice.
0: I think that's happened actually to Damian Wayne Robin in Super Sons right now. They kind of... Seems he's, like it. He's 13, but he's he's sort of been around a long time to be 13. He kind of has <laughs> yes. hopped around ages. I don't know. <laughs>
1: um, also, a post-Burn Mackey reboot era of Spider-Man, uh, Peter Parker and Mary Jane would preface about 90% of their statements with, we're too young to be dealing with... Something, <laughs> or at our age, we shouldn't have to worry about something yet. Uh, in order to make them appear younger, uh, this is after. <laughs> this is like you know, like you know, if you have like a swarm of flies and you you step on an ant instead. Because uh-huh. uh, this is they 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 feel like the age of the characters is what drew, which put was pushing people away uh neglecting the fact that they're just coming off the clone saga
0: yeah really i mean <laughs> yeah, you know with, that, it's with like, that dreary ending you know with the losing yeah, of a baby it's like, she uh, the kind of yeah, tough like, to uh put that back in the box but all right
1: that's like it's like oh they're not relatable because they're in their late 20s it's like no they're not relatable because they, we just spent four years fighting a clone yeah <laughs> and following the wrong guy um Now, in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, A through Z, Volume 1, Number 2, May 2008, they stated that every four to five years in real-time publications, one year of Marvel time has passed, which is why it slips out of joint in 2018.
0: Yeah, there's there's a list. If, If you were to work this out on paper, you would see that in 2018, we start to head into the 2020s. Yeah. And so so they're going to do something next year that's going to, uh, who knows, probably just say oh, Fantastic Four 1 happened now in 2008 or something so we'll see. They're just so. going
1: to say Fantastic Four number 1 never happened. Never happened, who? <laughs> we Fantastic don't know who 1?
0: they are. Well, Avengers number 1, that was the beginning. Yeah, there you go <laughs> <laughs> new Avengers number 1 in right? 2008. Oh god <laughs>
1: But they, didn't Marvel say that they're they're not doing any big events for what eighteen to twenty four months after this next big event?
0: Oh, that's the cutest thing I've heard all. Isn't it day. Adorable? That's so nice.
1: <laughs> now, across the street at DC, they had legacy characters in the nineteen nineties, and they walked that back. Which re- and then they reestablished the multiverse with the uh, Infinite Crisis and the you know the Superboy Punch and all that. Uh-oh. Then they wiped it all away with Flashpoint and the New Fifty Two. Which started, you know, it started with Justice League, but then everything else was five years in the future. Uh-huh. Except for, I think, action comics. Uh, so we had this five-year timeline that we tried to compress everything into. Yeah, and, and then some books... Five or six
0: Robins. Some books like Batman and Green Lantern were clearly bringing, uh, even right from the beginning, yeah, all of their continuity. Yep. Exactly five Robins or four Robins in the same room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then But then later on, it came out that... All the things that we that had happened in the previous continuity to you know Superman, Wonder Woman, everybody had happened in those five years, and it's like, yep.
1: what? I yeah, don't... Superman, Superman died, but then he didn't die, but then he died again, so <laughs> and then so he came like, back.
0: Yeah, he, all in five years. It's like what a what a, what a f- crazy time that must have been to be alive. Let me tell you. <laughs> uh,
1: then we had Convergence, which converged, <laughs> and then <laughs> then we had Rebirth, where um. The Wally said that they stole ten years from them, and yeah, well, so we don't know where those ten years went.
0: But the multiverse is back.
1: Some of it, Some most of it, it.
0: When they, want don't know. parts of it. They, they say. Yes.
1: So this is all we we say all of that to say this. DC Comics is obviously not as rigid about their timeline.
0: Yeah, it's uh, definitely, and you know, to, just to kind of expound on the whole thing is you know and and i think one thing that draws me to dc is that they're not as rigid about it you know that yeah. it's the kind of thing where if you think about it it's it's never it's going to fall It'll apart destroy immediately you, you know mean yeah. so you have to just not look at it you have to take everything kind of as happening roughly around now and if things happen to link up in continuity hey that's great if not that's well guess what, that's the way it is you know <laughs> um it, it's, it'll never really work, you know, and I think, and this is something we talked about a couple episodes ago, but I think the the, the best fix was legacy characters mm-hmm. for the timeline, and this goes for DC and Marvel, I think that's that really is the best way to handle this kind of thing, but they've never been able to stick the landing on that, you know, they always walk that back and have to go back to the original characters, and I think it's too bad, but what are you gonna do if that's uh, the comics biz?
1: That's it. And uh, I feel almost as though we, you know we've talked uh, about this you know the Golden Age going into the Silver Age and then the fan like the first generation of fan creators right who uh, seem far more, yeah, you know, just they—they uh, they care a lot more about making things fit, and uh, I think a lot of us fans might be responsible for this.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I mean it has to be because who else would, would care? You know what I mean? Sure, sure. It's people writing in saying how could Spider-Man be over Being there when he was you know getting punched by the rhino over here or whatever, you know
1: clones but uh, <laughs> but you know I, i'm okay with the sliding scale I, I i think it's one of those things like we said you don't look directly at it or otherwise you know it's like looking at an eclipse you know you're, you're gonna it's gonna ruin your sight you're gonna you're not gonna be able to see anything after that um it, it, you know when when dc did the the new 52 and said there was a five year a five-year uh, timeline Uh-oh. i said no there isn't and that's how I that's how I looked at everything. Me too, and exactly. I, I didn't play along with their game, and I enjoyed things far more than I would have had I tried to fit everything into five years. That's
0: I think that's exactly right. I mean, I saw so many people online were just like livid and really trying to make it work, and it's like it yeah. doesn't work. It's like trying to put ten pounds of stuff into a five pound box. It's mm-hmm. it's not gonna fit. So. Ignore that, you know. Uh, yeah. Sorry, Dan Didio, I reject your five-year timeline because yep. it doesn't make any sense. But I'm no. willing. I'm willing to put it in my head that things happened at a more rapid.
1: Recently,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's more recent than we. Than this isn't there's not decades of continuity, and that works reasonably okay. You sure, know I mean it really is the kind of thing it's. It's funny. I would say after what we've just said, Chris, I, I couldn't imagine anyone who hasn't read comic books would ever pick one up because they'd be like, forget it. I'm not interested in that craziness. Um, but, you know, you got to you got to take the stories at face value individually and as they come, you know, and uh, you judge, you know, you find that people are drawn. That's why I think people or at least at one time they were drawn to characters as opposed to. You know, arcs as much because Mm-mm. the character is what you're following, and you know, you'll, you'll follow them wherever they go, no matter how many Christmases and birthdays they have, you know. <laughs> but um, we would love to know what you people, folks out there, think about the sliding timescale on comics, or what you sure. think of Green Arrow or Mike Grell or uh, anything that we've talked about in this episode. And you can write to us at Weird Comics History at gmail.com. We want to thank the folks again at WarlordWorlds.com for recommending this fine comic and comic series, The Longbow Hunters. You can find us on Facebook at Cosmic T Mill History, or on Twitter at Cosmic T Mill, which is pretty not a very active Twitter, but (laughs) it exists. It exists. Uh, You can find uh, me personally on Twitter at ReggieReggie,
1: and I'm at Ace Comics.
0: And I'd say every week, got to go check out Chris's personal blog. blog Chris is on infiniteearth dot com, where you have been soldiering through Millennium.
1: Yeah, you know, I I thought I would be that lone voice in the darkness. You know, I thought it was going to be. You know, everybody says it's the worst thing ever, so I figured, okay, I'm going to look at this. I've read mm-hmm. it before. I I didn't like it so much, but I was going to try to try to look at it from a you know a maybe, different perspective. I guess. Academically,
0: even you know. Yeah, but, yeah. maybe.
1: <laughs> And, and it's one of the worst things I've ever read.
0: It's pretty awful. It's amazing. It I mean, what's hilarious is you were uh, doing that. I kind of did a look around. I was like, I wonder who else has written about Millennium. And there is some, but not a lot. <laughs> Nobody likes And I think there's a reason I, for that.
1: I got, I got like a couple of tweets from people uh, the other day when I posted it. And they, they both said, we do not discuss Millennium.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like,
1: okay, I get that now.
0: I will say, though, that... Uh, you know that I think that your site will become the millennium resource because your coverage has been very thorough. Uh, the commentary is <laughs> great, but it's really it's 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 you're getting more and more. It's it's like you're becoming more and more punch drunk as the series goes on. You know, you're like, oh, you
1: know, that's that's true. Because I reread my first part and it was very optimistic. Uh-huh. It was cautiously optimistic, but optimistic nonetheless. And I just reread what I wrote uh, today. And it's like it's 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 like I'm trying to like chew off my arm to get
0: away. It's. <laughs> but if I know you, you are gonna finish it. Of course. That's how that's how Chris does. So folks, stay tuned, and maybe by the end you'll start to see some cries for help, and you can reach out to him and help him out. Uh, you know, do what you can for him. But uh, I think that's all we got for him this week. Chris got emails for him.
1: Just an, another big thanks to Ruth and Darren over at uh, Warlord Worlds Absolutely. and uh, Rad Adventures. Uh, great people. Uh, it's, you know, it, it might sound corny, but in this like uh, this blogging and podcasting uh, industry, yeah, could sure. Yes, it's a cottage industry of sorts. Uh, it can be a very lonely place. Uh, yeah. You know, we post stuff up in writing and in audio, and we don't expect anybody to read it or to listen to it. And uh, when you find out that there is a community out there and uh, people who do care and pump you up and allow you to give them kind words, uh, it makes the entire – it makes the community feel more like a family, as, as as silly as that might sound or as sappy as that might sound. And I think that Ruth and Darren have a lot of the responsibility for that.
0: Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think they are a great force in the comics, podcasting, and blogging Uh
1: 100% agree.
0: World, yeah. I guess you call it, and it, I, I also just want to say that I've been so surprised and pleased with a lot of the feedback that we're getting. A lot of positive feedback from people. Certainly. A lot of, a lot of people I respect. We got some reviews on iTunes. Um, they're so thrilled about that. Uh, Very
1: humbling. Yeah. You
0: know, Chris and I are not the, really the kind of people to ask for these kind of things, <laughs> so, or, or even expect them. You know, think that we we should get them, but uh. Sure. We're, we're so happy that people are enjoying what we're doing. We really are doing the kind of podcast that we think we would want to listen to. So uh, the, the people that are, enjoy it also and uh, Ruth and Darren, we, we can't thank you enough for kind of accepting us into the fold of uh, comics podcasters and uh, yeah, Ken, thank you very much. Very very touched and humbled by the whole experience.
1: Absolutely.
0: But if that's all we got for this week, I think I want you all to keep it on the treadmill silently.
1: current physicists tell us time doesn't really exist, they must live in Manhattan. But it's a theory that I'd like to believe, cause it means my career's already cracking. They make the
2: point, time's a construct of man to help us navigate events that happen. In that
1: case, I'd like to thank Brian Greene for making all my future records go platinum. It's about time, space, beats, and crew. It's about a minute till my whole life's through. It's about the seconds that we pass through Now, do you have the time of this time, have you? It's about time, space, beats, and crew It's about a minute till my whole life's through it's about the seconds that we pass through. Now, do you have the time? It is time. Have you uh, Bar time? is never
0: empty. Internet connected, It's empty. Calls. cock, reload and expand. Now we explode through time. Restraints. Restrictions. Sticking to my convictions. Switch and change position. Relinquish wicked religions. Operated like a digital clock ticking. Conflicting decisions.